Welcome to season two of the US-China Nexus, taking stock of a global China. China today is a superpower anew and its footprint is ever expanding. This season, each episode features a conversation with experts who unpack China's relations with different parts of the world. I'm your host, Eleanor M. Albert, a research fellow with the initiative. Today, our guest is Min Ye. Min Ye is an associate professor of international relations at the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University. Her research is situated in the nexus between domestic and global politics and the intersection of economics and security with a focus on China, India, and regional relations. Her publications include The Belt and Road and Beyond, State Mobilized Globalization in China, 1998 to 2018, which came out in 2020. Minya was previously selected as a Public Intellectual Program Fellow with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and a Rosenberg Scholar of East Asian Studies at Suffolk University. Min, welcome to the show. We're going to talk today about the Belt and Road. But before we talk about the high-ticket items, I wanted to ask you how you came about tracking and following what has really become this flagship initiative of Xi Jinping. This is fundamentally the most important question. The external analysts are lagging behind when it comes to China's domestic policy evolution or change. It's lagging behind by about a year to 18 months. When I started to pay attention to BII, it was 2013, right? In 2014, it was already very clear to me this is something significant. The reason that I was able to detect that, and most of my colleagues didn't, because I was uh, attending a lot of China scholarly think tank conferences on the economy, on international relations, and I wasn't looking for BRI, but BRI just stood out to me. The economists, they didn't know what to do. They were in such despair, trying to find solutions to overcapacity. And I also kind of feel there was very strong political insecurity because the new leader just came and China had a very different kinds of over-construction, infrastructure, resources, investment before this leader. People were developing their vested interests and their career trajectory in the pre-existing constructions. And now this new leader came and and they don't know how this is going to affect their work and their future. Clearly, BRI was announced by the leader, so it's politically safe. And yet it's also about investment, project, infrastructure, globalization, connectivity, right? So the five connectivity, like people, culture, policy, trade, investment, infrastructure. So you can see that everyone can be part of this safe new strategic initiative. The political aspect was really important, and that affects the domestic policy community. They find BI, this is strategically, optimistically, very convenient venue for them revamp, re-adapt, and continue their previous endeavors. But at a more humanistic level, and for people who grew up in China, and who are familiar and versed with the Chinese ideas, aspirations, perspective, 
I can see that so many Chinese scholars or businesses who perhaps will not have any use of BRI, but feel attracted to BRI. The idea is it's really speaking to their learned, acquired perception of the world and China's role in the world. So the cultural symbolism of BI one was the maritime domain, the maritime exploration led by Admiral Zheng He. This has been going on as a myth to China. It's open outlook, going to the sea, spreading Chinese culture and gifts, and while bringing goodwill or sharing China's goodwill and bring appreciation of the Chinese cultural and technological achievements. And the Silk Road, that's even more historic because the Chinese had thousands of years of land exploration. In fact, I think at almost all diplomatic conference rooms, you know, these big fancy office buildings in the diplomatic offices, they all have the Zhang Qian, this painting of Zhang Qian going to the West. I think this aspiration or ambition to be this new benign global force that makes these announcements very attractive. So you have two levels, right? At the top level, at the global level, at a more humanistic level, the Silk Road and the Maritime Silk Road, it just speaks to the Chinese fundamental intellectual historic core. And then at a more operational policy level, and then the economic needs, the political safety net, then the diplomats and the strategists can also fashion way of connecting their ongoing efforts with BRI. I haven't seen any policy in my whole life that got so much interest from so many people in China. But that doesn't mean it's not criticized. I remember very clearly that online when the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Exchange talk about the Marshall Plan, Chinese Marshall Plan, you have this media outcry from ordinary people, right? Charging this person for forgetting our own poor schools, children, thinking about overexpansion. And even in late 2015, at a very high BRI think tank meetings with scholars, Half of the scholars were very critical, and half of them are very, very supportive. The middle grounds actually are the minority, and this also indicates that in China, this is by no means a well-thought and coordinated policy, but it has the Chinese logic, the humanistic global aspiration logic related to China's nationalism, globalism. Then you have this political economic logic of development economists and construction companies, investors, they, they need something to safely carry out. That's why I said there's a gap, because when I came back to the United States in 2014, and I said, this is the real deal. For about two years, every person that I spoke to, they were so dismissive. It's just talk. There's no money, there's no funding mechanism. Then I say, well, it can't be just talk when you have so many elites pouring their resources and trying to figure out ways to implement it. And then we have the BRI Summit number one. 
2017. Then people, the diplomats in Beijing, they already understood that this is big deals. In my opinion, in 2017, that's when the fervor is dying down because all the actions that were accumulated from 2014 to 2017, the steam is gone, and BRI has entered a second phase, a phase that the leader tried to give it a brand, a name, but in fact, at the implementation side, this bottom-up. Pent up demand for it has already slowed down, and so this would mark the two or three years after when the West was imposing restrictions, oversight, which are clearly needed. But it's also a period that China itself has lost a lot of steam. And now I think we're entering another phase of lagging behind during COVID. None of us could go to China or work with Chinese. Covid really disrupted the trajectory of BRI. China could not sustain the big projects. For example, these big routes, right, the corridors, the CPAC, and then the Ukraine war basically stopped the China European railways. So BRI is really facing a lot of disruption, and the financial sustainability of the partner countries is also concerning. So we are at the state that the West are still saying we are in two ways. One is, oh, it's gone too fast. We still need China, and that would be the global development specialist trying to salvage Chinese interest in global infrastructure, global development, global financing. Just do it better. <laughs> Then we have the policy. And, and political circles that view BRI as a challenge. China is putting up a systematic, coordinated grand strategy to dominate the technology space and to bind different regions. But I, I think the BRI within China has already entered a new phase during COVID, just out of expediency, and also the Chinese domestic economic sectoral change makes this as necessary. That is, it has the mood to green BRI and digital BRI and infrastructure, and that's where I feel if the West can understand BRI not in a lagging fashion, rather in a pre-scient fashion, then they'll know that BRI's new direction actually would make the rhetorical element that cooperation a possible avenue. This is the avenue that China is pursuing. That is global environment, climate change, green technology, green economy, and when we hear almost every single politicians in the West saying we don't want to fight China on all grounds, we still want to be able to cooperate on climate, but they they are still missing this the Chinese the greatest climate <laughs> initiative that is Green BRI. Because they they still conceptualize BR as a strategy against the West, so we are missing an opportunity in cooperating more proactively. That was a great overview of how this has evolved, how you got interested in it. This fall will be ten years since BRI was first announced. You mentioned a lot of different actors. I wonder if we could just break down and dispel some of the understandings of what BRI is. 
There are all these ways in which the West in particular has fundamentally misunderstood how BRI came to be and what it represents. Obviously, it's changed in that decade, but it seemed for a while that every single project just had BRI stamped on it. And today, are there standards for what qualifies as a BRI project? Who are the bureaucratic entities that oversee and coordinate on BRI issues? So I'll say two things. One, I think it's a right question to ask and to push the Chinese side and what's BRI project. And this has been ongoing effort in China too. To what extent you want to offer clarity and mechanism so that the risk of all China projects will not become a government diplomatic risk. This question is not only welcome and encouraged and urged by outsiders. It's actually urged by China too. They are looking for ways to categorize so that they can take measured risk on China's actions abroad. Because indeed, a lot of actions China does abroad are not BRI. I think there are some rough sketches. One is uh, if it's China's aid project by right? international aid, they set up a new office regulating Chinese aid abroad. And those will all be government projects. So I think it's important to rather think about is this BRI project or not? Rather, you think about is this government project or not? What's fusion? Right? So government project, if it's aid, if it involves government grants, they have China African funds and China with Latin American forums and China Middle Eastern forums. So at those forums, projects announced are largely government-led. They follow a different uh, rationale. And you can find signature important projects on the State Council Development Research Center that's the leading think tank that also coordinating and the implementer of the BRI small leading group. BRI small leading group should be the top political body of a BRI, except small leading group is not bureaucratic body. It's just a liaison coordinating mechanism. The desk office is really the DRC. So DRC does update the small leading groups, reports, and various projects. So you can find the projects that are recognized by the small leading group as BRI projects. So we'll have aid, that's a separate office. And then for investment, then you'll have Ministry of Commerce. Right? MOFCOM approves all projects that are above a certain threshold. Here, again, you can tell whether they are invested by the state or private. If that matters, you can make the separation. So that's as good as you get. And then the banks, anything that are financed by Silk Road Fund or AIIB or China Exim Bank. But the complexity with this is now them are alone financing. They are always joint financing. But overall, if you have the aid money, you have this development bank financing, and somehow they are announced on these various forums or bilateral summits, 
And then you have inclusion in the DRC or the small leading groups, their database. That's quite fair to say this public, so related to the government objective. But I also feel like it's not as useful to identify BRI projects because BRI is a concept. Even the best data scientists, their data will not tell you completely whether this is BI or not. Our GDP center compile all the loans. So that's as best as you can do. You can have this sectorial, very good database. The Chinese loans or Chinese investments in power plants and who are the investors the Chinese couldn't create you know, this because bureaucratically, they can't really control. They can't really tell that all its investors are your BII. It doesn't matter anyway. If you want to look for the governing body, then it's NDRC, the National Development and Reform Council. The NDRC people, they understand the Chinese political economy very well. Right, Most of the projects are locally led. Other than the top-down available funds, opportunities, projects, the tendering process or some of the ideas came from local. It's not just 33 provincial units. You have hundreds of cities, towns, and companies. So setting up a top-down transparency. Yeah, basically asking China to become a Singapore. It's impossible, right? So China has a lot of similarity with Singapore, except Singapore is a city and China is a huge. So that's why I think it's useful to identify by the financing mechanism to what extent the government is involved in the projects but it's futile and it's unnecessary trying to impose so-called transparency on everything China does under the sun. Especially if BRI is more of a conceptual umbrella branding tool for not just addressing domestic overcapacity that has existed for a long time, but also it's being employed to reframe the way China engages and orients itself towards the world. Those are concepts that are going to be really difficult to generate cookie cutter categorization markers. And in some ways, it also fits a lot with standard traditional Chinese political policy rhetoric in terms of having flexible overarching concepts that are malleable. And that has been to their benefit. There's been so much discussion about whether BRI projects have been successful. Are there some success stories that you have studied that you want to share in terms of the impact that they've had? And then the flip side of it, what are some of the growing pains or lessons learned either for China or for recipients? People all need to know a little bit about statistics. Sometimes I'm so frustrated when people say, oh, 2% is wrong, then you can't say it's success. You have to calculate the statistical representation to say one thing is worthwhile to do or not. In general, I, I think all the commentators, when they talk about this, they don't have the statistical formula behind it. I can't tell you that everything is successful because it's not. If we want to do a model recipient of BI, what that would be? Malaysia, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, Malaysia is benefiting right, significantly, and yet you can't say Malaysians are all successful or all the projects in Malaysia are successful. 
within China, BRI is still more popular than unpopular. Survey after survey shows more than 80% of Chinese support BRI. And then you think about the real elites, the local governments, companies, think tanks, bureaucrats, and then they think BRI is a more useful venue for them than otherwise. In a sense, it's still quite popular for China, right? Overseas investments, export of EV and green technology exports, health corporation, BRI is a good brand for them, and it's an accepted venue, and you have regular meetings. So I anticipate the BRI summit or the 10 years, you'll see a lot more project initiatives coming from this fusion of local and top-down interests. And in terms of overseas, in general, the BRI benefits the elites more than locals. But even when they are benefiting the localities, it doesn't make it a popular project. But over 10 years, they bring changes that are better for the locality. But nevertheless, people still don't like it. I'll give you a personal example. I was so sad that my childhood house was repossessed by the government, the whole wetland area. For all of us, like the whole generation of us growing up in that area, we all really, really sad by this redevelopment of a very vibrant community into the wetland park. And elderly people certainly were distraught. But then this community is unviable because the elderly who will grow old, there are no working age population who were living there. And so the government repossessed the whole wetland area and then turned into a really outstanding, really beautiful, massive wetland park. It's all the riverways, bridges, uh, lands, and temples. It's very well done. And then the community, they were relocated. So it took people a lot long time to adjust. But if you ask population there, do you like the move? The elderly people say, no, I don't like, I still miss my older place, but they get by. They still live close to each other, except now they are in high rises rather than in the community houses. My presumption would also be that for the type of work that some of BRI projects are being done overseas, there's a, an added level of challenge because in the Chinese context, that's a relationship between state and society. When you take BRI projects outside of the Chinese context, it's a state to state and then state to society relationship. And Chinese actors aren't necessarily always working on a two-pronged front. They prioritize a state to state relationship. The trickle-down effects of what BRI comes to represent for local communities of BRI recipient projects is probably more complex. I totally agree. So I'm doing a research with a collaborator in Laos. Same concept, but it's run very poorly. When I give you an example of the Chinese development, it's the local agents who were actually implementing this retransformation. It's your own people who talk to all the households extensively. There are lots of mistakes, there are lots of errors, there are lots of unjust 
But overall, it's your own people. They are trying to do the best for the most possible people. In the Laos situation, the case we explore, no one is considering the Chinese companies. They got their funding from the Chinese local governments, and they really only pay attention to the local governments in China. Same thing, the localities, local governments in Laos, they know these companies. They don't care about this、uh, Chinese operator there because they say we only needed to work with the Chinese in China, and so they don't even bother trying to work with the Chinese operators on site. So you'll find the operators doing something, and then no cooperative show up from the local representatives or the government. So you can imagine that for、uh, already. Very faulty development in the perfect case, and now you are transferring this experience abroad. So, if you are thinking about public opinion, no, that's not going to help. But I do think a lot of non-China persons, when they only say, "Oh, people are not happy," I think that's not really the fundamental. Public opinion works to a certain extent. Or they say, why do you build this speed rail in Indonesia? You only need a three hours drive. You already have a highway. No, the speed rail will shorten it to less than hour, and you can work because you already are high traffic area, which means the business, the demands is there. Going back to our initial conversation on the ideology, the Chinese is a kind of infrastructure ideology. But also, power is about infrastructure power. So the state penetrates and projects its authority in society through infrastructure, and that experience is not abroad. When infrastructure in non-China setting is a transactional calculation, right? Cost benefits. So you see that Chinese needs explain a lot more, and also the applicability of this model, whether it works, is actually very questionable. That makes a lot of sense. On top of this focus on the state penetration through infrastructure and different types of construction projects, there are also a lot of questions about the financing of these projects and the viability of the economics. Status of some of the recipients of these projects and and loans. There's so much public discussion about this phrase of debt trap diplomacy, the narratives around it. How valid are those? So again, let me reiterate my point of statistics. If you think about thousands of projects and loans from China or more since 2005. I cannot say none of them are debt entrapment. For example, I study China's investments in Africa in two thousand five, and perhaps although the need to secure energy security or the critical mineral hypothetical, actually I haven't seen one case that can be clearly identified as.、Uh, Debt entrapment defined as you give debt with a goal to possess your collateral. When we think about the banking, right? The banks lend me money to buy the house. The goal is not to make money or the loan. Rather, they want to indebt me so that they can possess my house in a few years. That's what we call debt 
entrapment. So if that's the definition of debt entrapment, I mean, I haven't seen clearly one, but I can't say it doesn't exist. But hypothetically, if we are thinking for very specific geostrategic localities, because I always think about leaders or policymakers or even business people, they have a strategy. So for the business people to be able to acquire this critical mineral, they may do things that give them advantage with possible strategic choke points and uh, possible critical mineral resources vital to China's energy security and national security. It's possible that loans were given with a purpose of gaining influence and control so that that vital interest can be maintained. And those uh, are different level of strategic operation or strategy by Beijing. In general, Chinese loans, the vast majority, it's out of commercial concerns. This investment in the iron ore or these materials actually are needed by China. In my book, I actually talk about the Chinese investments in Africa from 2008 to 2011. There are lots of press around it and mostly are done by private investors. And they were very, very successful for the investors. Some say they made so much money from that resources acquisition, but they lost them all in the solar industry (laughs) expansion. For the raw material that they acquire in Africa, they just buy up one of the small mines and then export them back to China. And because of commodity price rises, so it's not planned. So you can see that for the smartest capitalists, they are playing with their luck. And now going back to the recipient side, you can't really anticipate COVID. That's for sure. Absent COVID, some of the governments, they are irresponsible borrowers or they couldn't produce enough return. That's what we call financial risk. And the financial risk is uh, increased by China. When you have monetary supply, lose credit, the financial risk increases. There's a lot of need to really work with China because all of us have stake in a stable financial environment globally. And it's a loss for China too. When you lend to certain governments and it doesn't recuperate and you have no use for those collaterals, it's a sunk in problem. I think it's really important for us to keep in mind When we talk about the risks of certain types of loans and debt, China has learned a lot in a relatively short period of time in its experience as a lender after having been a recipient. I think it wanting to distinguish itself as a state that was perhaps more risk tolerant for certain types of conditions has also mean that it has learned and probably is doing some deep thinking about how it will finance some of these things moving forward. In that vein, in the past year, we've seen Xi Jinping solidify his position in the party state apparatus. At the same time, China is really trying to revive its economic situation after its pandemic isolation. What are the types of things that you are watching moving forward for what the future of BRI might look like? Is BRI 
undergoing a reform or is it just shifting into a new phase? That's a very good question. I think BII has become bi-directional. So when we initially think of BII, it's from China to abroad. In this direction, China to abroad, it will be definitely much smaller in terms of scale because they overexpanded. Some of the investments will continue. I think a lot of those in Southeast Asia are moving relatively steadily. So Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, under the bracket of RCEP, the Regional Economic Comprehensive Partnership, the to abroad, that part is still ongoing. And then Latin America, Africa, they already had done significantly. So some of them are just about if some of the projects can be maintained, staining it and restructuring it. I think a new will be add-ons. And the add-ons will be on the green because green means a lot of things in China. Electrical vehicle and their joint sectors like battery, minerals, for battery, you need a charging station. So there are a whole industry all belong to green. And then digital telecommunication, the infrastructure, but also digital devices, parts and components. So that's part of the so-called supply chain restructuring. I think this both like it will be based on major infrastructure or special economic zones. China built this industrial park in different countries in Africa and Southeast Asia. So they may provide the launch pad for the add-ons of digital and health, like vaccine production and medical devices and the green BI uh, as add-on. But it's becoming inward too. So that's where I think at the BI Summit this year, almost for sure, there'll be a lot of business-led consortiums and how others can be investing in China and exporting in China. So I'm actually a political economist. I'm not a foreign policy person. So I think the real drama is within China. As a domestic political economy person, I got interest in the BII because the drama moved overseas. But now I think it's home. It's a domestic you will see new trends and whether some of these identified priorities like a trade restructuring, dual circulation, sustainable development, supply chain restructuring, whether this will happen and how it happens. We will see a lot more from within China than outside. Our show is created and produced by Eleanor M. Albert. Our music is from Universal Production Music. Special thanks to Toya Ulan, Sherman Tong, and Amy Vandervliet. For more initiative programming, videos, and links to our events, visit our website at uschinadialogue.georgetown.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your preferred podcast platform.